0: Hello, this is ESPN senior writer Ivan Mazel. Today, Wednesday, November 6th, is the 150th anniversary of the first college football game ever. Rutgers beat Princeton 6-4. And trust me, pretty much nothing that happened that day looks like today's game, except that the Rutgers players wore scarlet. As part of ESPN's coverage of the 150th anniversary of college football, we are proud to bring you the Down and Distance podcast with eight stories illustrating how college football has impacted and reflected American culture over the course of 150 years. Here's an episode from the series, and we encourage you to listen and subscribe to Down and Distance wherever you get your podcasts. Two college football teams boarded the SS Lurline at Pier 35 in San Francisco on the last Thursday in November 1941. The San Jose State College Spartans and the Willamette College Bearcats were giddy with anticipation for their voyage west to the Hawaii Territory. Each team would play the University of Hawaii, and they would play one another. Players planned to swim in the blue of the Pacific and frolic on the sands of Waikiki Beach. Sure, the threat of war loomed over the players, just as it did over the entire nation. Still, for all the debate in Washington, war remained separate from reality, somewhere out there in the future, along with graduation and finding a job and finding a girl you could build a life with. Except on the last Wednesday in November 1941, the day before San Jose State and Willamette boarded the Lur Lane, Japanese submarines began moving east toward Hawaii. Welcome to Down in Distance, a podcast about the history of college football, part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. I'm your host, Ivan Mazel, Today's episode is We Interrupt This Season. In it, we will tell the story of two college football teams stranded in Hawaii after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor and what happened to them in the days and months after the attack. The picture we see as we look back is framed by the security of knowing how the war ended, bathed in the glow of memory, burnished by the love and respect accorded the men and women whom we lavished with the title of The Greatest Generation, Most of the San Jose State and Willamette players came home from the war and without fanfare, got jobs. Several of them became coaches. One player never came home. Every college football season, it takes a lot of effort to get each team properly equipped and ready to hit the field as an efficient playing machine. Same for your business. For more than 90 years... Centos has worked to help businesses big and small look more professional and run more smoothly and efficiently. Great players should focus their energy on the important things. The scouting report, the fine details that will help separate them from the competition. Centos will handle all the fine details, allowing the team, your business, to focus on what's most important. Centos has the products and services to help your employees stay safe from first aid to training and compliance courses. Centos is a proud Fortune 500 company with more than 43,000 employees operating over 500 locations across the United States and Canada. More than 1 million businesses trust Centos to help them open their doors with confidence. Get Centos and get ready for the workday. Learn how Centos can help get your business ready at Centos.com. The invitation to play Hawaii had been quite a coup for both San Jose State and Willamette. In an era with only three bowl games, the San Jose States of the world never got this type of season-ending trip, one that included a whopping $5,000 guarantee. Maybe San Jose State and Willamette got the invitation because they agreed to accept it. Few mainland schools were willing to spend a week on a ship to play at Hawaii. And air travel to Oahu took 16 hours and cost a lot of money. Ben Winkleman was in his second year as head coach of San Jose State. He was 42 and had once been a player, a very good player, the captain of the 1921 Arkansas team and the first Razorback to play in the NFL. And Winkleman had proven to be an outstanding young coach. In his first season and a half, San Jose State won 16 games, lost only one, and tied two. But injuries waylaid the Spartans as they began to play the back half of their 1941 schedule. In the four games before they went to Hawaii, the Spartans lost three and tied one, a 0-0 game against Fresno State played in a Friday night fog so thick that the San Jose Mercury Herald reported... A reliable source has it that San Jose blocked two kicks in the first quarter. On the night before the Spartans left for Hawaii, they lost to Moffett Field, a team from the Army Air Base a few miles north of campus. In those days, Army bases fielded teams that regularly played college teams. They had done so for at least one generation. Dwight Eisenhower coached base teams well into the 1920s before he stopped. Ike felt as if his prowess on the sideline might overshadow his ability as an officer. Moffitt Field had older, bigger, stronger players than San Jose State, as you might expect. But after the game, Coach Winkleman grumbled, we were playing with one foot halfway up the gangplank. Sure, Moffitt's got a good football team, but they aren't that good. Winkleman knew the Moffitt Field team very well. He was their coach, too. On this night, he chose to spend the game on the San Jose State sideline, and he saw his young Spartans manhandled. One player from the military team stepped on the unprotected face of Spartan backup guard Ken Bailey. Face masks in those days were a rarity. Bailey was a scrappy guy on a team filled with scrappers. The great players, like quarterback Frankie Albert, the All-American just up the road at Stanford, didn't come to the San Jose States. Bailey was a local kid from Los Gatos who played on the line in the fall and wrestled in the spring. Bailey in no way looked like a BMOC. He wore wire-rimmed glasses and dreamed of being a minister. He once wrote a poem about God entitled The Master Builder and read it in church. After the service, his parents hung those words on the kitchen wall of their home. Bailey played enough to make the travel roster to Hawaii. Coach Winkleman agonized over filling out the 25-man roster. He had a premonition about taking his players to Hawaii. Winkleman wondered aloud to his wife whether he should cancel the season-ending trip that his team had looked to all year with great anticipation. If I only didn't have to go with the squad, Winkleman said. These are dangerous times, and anything can happen. Winkleman refused to let his wife accompany the team, the first road trip she had missed, and he refused to allow the local sports riders to make the trip, too. In those days, schools often paid the travel expenses of the riders covering the team. That same churn in the pit of the stomach existed on the Willamette team, too, as the Bearcats prepared to take the train south from their Oregon campus to San Francisco. Bearcats coach Speck Keen had recruited players by dangling the Hawaii trip in front of them, and the effort had paid off. The Bearcats had lost only one game all season. But in the days leading up to the trip, a Willamette player named Wayne Oben would recall decades later, we expected the trip to be canceled because of war tensions, right up until we sailed. But once we got underway and landed there, we never thought an attack would occur. The place was so beautiful, and who would attack such a heavily fortified place? The teams boarded the Lurleen with great excitement, which lasted until about the time they hit open water. As elegant as the SS Lurline was, the week-long cruise to Hawaii was less the lap of luxury than the fetal position of distress. A Willamette player named Ken Jacobson would remember keeping down only one meal during the entire week-long voyage. The teams arrived on Oahu on Thursday, December 4th, wobbly nearly to a man with seasickness, and Willamette had to play Hawaii only two days later. Willamette lost 20-6 before a record crowd of 24,000 at Honolulu Stadium. Among the fans were the 25 San Jose State players and Coach Winkleman. They charted the game and scouted their next two opponents, Hawaii on the following Saturday, December 13th, and Willamette on December 16th. Also in the stands were many military personnel, presumably including some of the men and women who would not live another 24 hours. Needless to say, the other two games never took place. Sunday, December 7th dawned beautifully at the Moana Hotel, 12 miles up Waikiki Beach from Pearl Harbor. The teams planned to eat breakfast that morning at the Moana and then take a 9.30 a.m. bus tour of Oahu, the local hospital, and Pearl Harbor. The hotel staff made 75 box lunches for the bus trip, only the buses never arrived. The Moana Hotel stood far enough away from Pearl Harbor that the players and coaches couldn't see the attack. What they witnessed from the hotel got explained away. When spent anti-aircraft shells landed in the water within yards of the Moana, the Filipino waiters in the dining room told the teams those were whales. A woman ran into the hotel lobby screaming hysterically that she had tried to take her husband to work at Hickam Field, an army air base and she had seen American planes being strafed. Three San Jose State players had made dates with three Hawaii co-eds for a Sunday picnic. When the girls picked them up in a Buick at the hotel, their nerves were already shot. They just wanted to go home. Traffic had turned chaotic, but the girls knew the back roads, and the six of them went to one girl's house in a tony neighborhood in the hills above Pearl Harbor. They watched the planes dive at the ships, and they watched the conflagration that hours before had been the USS Arizona.
1: The battleship Arizona and four other warships destroyed. The air base on the island and large numbers of aircraft bombed and burnt out in one devastating, treacherous blow.
0: Through the flames and the smoke, they watched the USS Oklahoma slowly capsize into the mud.
1: Taken by surprise, the fighter aircraft at Hickam Field and Wheeler Field had little chance of engaging the enemy bombers, who were thus able to wreak their destruction almost unhampered.
0: One of the players, Gray McConnell, told the San Jose State Mercury in 1991, the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, it was horrible, but it was fascinating too. We stayed there the whole day, partly to see what more would happen, and partly because the mother of one of the girls begged us to stay. She was really scared. Back at the hotel, several of their Spartan teammates started walking down the beach toward the attack. They came upon some American soldiers who ordered them to turn around. "'You can't tell us what to do,' one of the players said. "'We're civilians. Fix bayonets,' the soldier ordered his colleagues." The Spartans turned around. You know who works hard, rookies? Sure, they make mistakes, but no one's got more to prove knowing each day is another opportunity to outwork them all and earn the respect they deserve. That's why after 130 years, Carhartt still approaches each day with the passion and work ethic of a company that's 130 years young. Same hunger, same determination, Same giant chip on the shoulder. And in the same way a rookie needs to work hard to earn the respect of their peers, everything Carhartt makes has to keep earning the respect of the hardworking people who wear it. That's why Carhartt still works like a rookie, and why Carhartt will keep outworking them all for the next 130 years, too. Visit Carhartt.com forward slash CFB to learn more and shop this season's hardest working gear. The territorial governor declared martial law. The entire island went under a blackout. The coaches quickly volunteered their boys for whatever duty they could handle. Within short order, some of the Spartans had been appointed policemen by the city of Honolulu. Others were issued rifles and helmets from World War I and stationed as guards at Punahou School, the makeshift home of the Army Corps of Engineers, which had been bombed out of its previous home. After a weekend at the luxurious Moana, the players on guard duty began sleeping on box springs on the concrete floor of the typing room at Punahou. Their lives were happening on the fly. They had a lot of responsibility and very little training. As older men, they laughed about the incidents. In the moment, they weren't that funny. Take the time that the players stacked their ancient rifles outside their quarters. One of the rifles fired sending a bullet through the ceiling and into the sleeping area. Luckily, it was unoccupied. One of the newly appointed policemen mistook a curtain waving in a window for a woman flashing Morse code to a Japanese sub. One Willamette freshman named Earl Hampton told the Santa Rosa Press Democrat in 2011, They gave us rifles with bayonets and told us that if the Japanese came back, we were going to defend the island. Hell we couldn't have defended anything. Players did do some constructive work. They helped dig trenches. They helped lay the barbed wire. One of them, with blue cellophane over his flashlight beam, helped deliver a baby. They performed six-hour shifts of guard duty. They served as cops. They signed for a salary of $165 a month and they settled in for what they thought would be several months of duty before they could get home. No one knew when that would be. The Lurline, the ship that had brought the two teams to Honolulu on the Thursday before the attack, had departed for its return trip to the mainland the next day. Among its passengers was a former UCLA halfback, an honorable mention All-American, who had played semi-pro football in Hawaii that fall for $100 per game. Two days later, in the middle of the Pacific, the crew began painting the ship's porthole windows black, and the Lurline zigzagged its way to California. The halfback's name was Jackie Robinson. Sure, I was scared, he said, but I finally got into a poker game and forgot all about it. On December 16th, nine days after the attack, two American ships, the SS President Coolidge, a passenger liner, and the USAT Hugh L. Scott, a troop ship, arrived in Honolulu from Manila, now on the brink of being overrun by the Japanese. Traveling to the mainland would be treacherous. The authorities knew the Japanese subs patrolled the California coast. Yet military officials in Hawaii and Washington realized the most severely wounded patients, not to mention tourists and the families of the military personnel, needed to travel to the safety of the mainland. The Coolidge and the Scott were outfitted to do the job. The Navy assigned three nurses, some corpsmen, and 125 wounded to the Coolidge, the larger of the two ships. The Coolidge had room for 900 passengers. Eight local nurses volunteered to serve on the Scott, which would transport 55 patients. Keene, the Willamette coach, recognized the opportunity. He lobbied the Navy to use the players on the two football teams as hospital orderlies for the wounded in exchange for getting them back to San Francisco. He got the approval on December 19th, just two hours before the ships would leave. The coaches and the players rushed to the pier, but only 18 of the Spartan players boarded the Coolidge. The other seven decided to remain in their new jobs as Honolulu policemen. That monthly salary roughly the average American wage, felt awfully grown-up in a 20-year-old pocket. The President Coolidge and the Hugh L. Scott departed in the early evening and headed north before they turned east. They strayed 65 miles outside of the normal shipping lanes, wary of the Japanese submarines. Up and down the California coast, there were reports of Japanese fighter planes flying overhead. Those planes were constructed of rumor and hysteria, but the subs were real. As the Coolidge and the Scott dodged and weaved their way toward the United States, the Japanese sank three merchant vessels, one of them a 440-foot oil tanker between San Francisco and Los Angeles. The players took one look at their shipboard accommodations, hammocks hanging in steerage, assessed that a torpedo would pretty much go right through them, and decided to sleep on deck. Despite all of the worry and fear that surrounded the teams during their time in Hawaii, the players, as well as the rest of the public, had been shielded from the impact of what had happened on the morning of December 7th. Pearl Harbor itself had remained off-limits. That made it all the more shocking when the players boarded the Coolidge, each of them assigned to assist a specific patient or two. Finally, they confronted the horror of war. They saw what pain looked like. They saw the sailors, boys their age, their burned bodies covered in disinfectant. Remember how the ride over to Hawaii had been racked by seasickness? Imagine the ride home. The same winter seas, all portholes painted black and kept shut. Inside, the smell of burnt flesh and putrefying wounds. If the players went on deck at night, they couldn't use a flashlight or even light a cigarette. four days out, orders aboard the ship changed. The passengers had to wear their life preservers at all times. To pass the time, passengers scavenged their belongings, looking for Christmas presents for the children on board. They sang carols. They sang other songs. A teenage girl named Shirley McKay had traveled with the Willamette Party. Her dad was a big political figure in Oregon, and when he accompanied the Bearcats on the trip, She tagged along. Shirley McKay lived another 70 years, and for the rest of that long life, she got emotional every time she heard the song, California Here I Come. Building a winning team is all about finding the right people for the job. That's why college coaches all over the country spend so much time recruiting players they need on the field. And when it comes to hiring for your business, There's no better tool than LinkedIn. LinkedIn provides a vast array of recommended job candidates all in one organized place. Over 600 million members visit LinkedIn to make connections, learn, and grow as professionals and discover new job opportunities. That's how they make sure your job post gets in front of people with the right hard skills and soft skills to meet your role requirements. Things like collaboration, work ethic, adaptability, LinkedIn does the legwork to match you to the most qualified candidates so you can focus on hiring the person who will transform your business. To get $50 off your first job post, go to LinkedIn.com slash CFB. That's LinkedIn.com slash CFB to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Christmas dawn gray and drizzly on the West Coast. At the same hour that President and Mrs. Roosevelt escorted their White House guest, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill, into services at Foundry Methodist Church, three time zones to the east, the Coolidge and the Scott glided beneath the four-year-old Golden Gate Bridge to Safe Harbor. The Coolidge had left Oahu with 125 wounded men. It arrived in San Francisco with 124. A Navy man died on Christmas Eve ambulances lined up to take the wounded. The civilians came to cheer and to maybe glean a sliver of information about someone they knew at Pearl Harbor. The Willamette team made their way to the rail station and a train north. Most of the San Jose State team returned to campus, although backup Jack Galvin, who lived in Redwood City, got dropped off there on the Bayshore Freeway and walked several miles home, carrying his luggage. In subsequent days, the Bay Area papers covered the arrival of the ships in great detail and included several stories about the return of the football teams. The New York Times piece, which ran above the fold on page one, didn't mention the football teams at all. Think about the media world in which we live today, and how the plight of those two football teams, stranded inside the grasp of an American enemy, would be covered now. After nearly a week of nausea and fear at sea, the relief and smiles on the players' faces would have lit a forest of Christmas trees. And somehow, after such a long, harrowing experience, two of the players still adhered to the protocol that a ship's arrival necessitated wearing a coat and tie. One of them was Ken Bailey, the bespectacled would-be minister from nearby Los Gatos. For Bailey, like everyone else on board, it would be a Christmas he remembered for the rest of his life. December 19th, 1942. Dear Family. Well folks, it's Christmas time again. And for the first time in my life, I'll spend it away from home. A year ago today, I was just on the way home. But I can't say that now. What a flock of memories this time brings. Of last year, singing over dangerous waters, singing to keep our courage up in a blacked-out ship, in the beautiful sight of San Francisco looming out of the gray fog on Christmas morning. Bailey had graduated from San Jose State in the spring of 1942 and enlisted in the Army, foregoing his last year of football eligibility. This was one of many letters he wrote home, first from Camp Lee near Richmond, Virginia, where he had just completed basic training. Bailey had taken a shine to Army life, and Army life to him. Because he had been a guard in Hawaii, he became the first in his unit to go on guard duty in Virginia. And he made the Camp Lee football team. On a team that included players from such collegiate powers as Alabama, Ohio State, Tennessee, and Texas A&M, Bailey earned a starting job. In his first game on Sunday, December 6, 1942, a year minus a day from Pearl Harbor, Camp Lee routed nearby Camp Pickett 32 to nothing. December 10, 1942. Dear family, This being on the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, or nearly, I wanted to put into this one game all the football that I would have played if I had finished my last year at State. I started the game and played all but three or four minutes of it. Over the loudspeaker, they announced the colleges from which we came, and there are a lot of people who have heard of San Jose State who never did before. I was determined to keep pace with all the boys from the big-name universities, and by golly, I did. I got a swell hand when they finally took me out in the last quarter. Love, Ken. That victory earned Camp Lee a game on January 3rd against a team of All-Stars that included the 1941 NFL Rookie of the Year, former Virginia All-American back Bill Dudley, who was about to enlist in the Army Air Forces. The All-Stars included other former collegians from the area, and the tickets, $1.10 for civilians, $0.40 for soldiers and children, sold well. For a guy who had trouble starting at a small college to play against the NFL Rookie of the Year. Well, you can imagine. January 1st, 1943. Dear Family, We have a team that averages 213 pounds per man, and I'm one of the shrimps. Funny thing, whenever I feel small in a game, I do better. I'm really hoping to justify the player's faith in me and the good wishes of a large number of friends who are going to see the game. I don't know what there is about this game of football that does so much to me that I feel more poised, able to face my duties with more self-confidence because of playing. Love, Ken. The All-Star team dominated Camp Lee, winning 24-7, as Dudley rushed for 164 yards and two touchdowns on only 13 carries. That would be Bailey's final football game. In 1943, he became a quartermaster, or supply officer, assigned to the Transportation Corps. Bailey accompanied Army shipments aboard Navy ships to Europe. In November, Bailey and his cargo boarded the USS John L. Motley, which traveled to Bari, Italy, a critical and newly won Allied port. Bari would serve as a supply point for the Allies as they tried to fortify their tenuous hold on the continent of Europe. Allied officers believed the Germans didn't have the fuel necessary for the Luftwaffe to attack Bari. So much work had to be done unloading the ships in port that work extended into the night. The lights on the ships could be seen for miles. Bailey last rode home on December 1st just to tell his family he had arrived in Italy. He had signed nearly every other letter home, Love, Ken. This letter he signed, Love, Kenneth. On the following evening, December 2nd, 1943, the Luftwaffe proved the Allied calculations about their fuel supply tragically wrong.
1: Sensor clearance now releases these pictures of a damaging raid made by enemy aircraft on the port of Bari on the Italian Adriatic coast.
0: German planes attacked Bari and sank 28 ships, including the Motley, which exploded when a bomb hit its ammunition. Hundreds of military personnel and Italian civilians died. The exact number isn't known, in part because the Allies had a cache of mustard gas on at least one of its ships. Mustard gas had been outlawed as a weapon after World War I, but the Allies believed that Hitler might use it, and if he did, they would use it in return.
1: In all, 17 Allied ships were lost in the disaster. Flames spread through the docks in an uncontrolled blaze. Aviation spirit and high explosives causing one of the worst disasters since Pearl Harbor.
0: Four weeks later, in Palo Alto, the Bailey family received a telegram from the Army that Kenneth, who had been reported missing, had been killed in action. Between the element of surprise and the amount of damage inflicted, the attack on Bari bore an eerie similarity to the attack that propelled the United States into the war. As a young college football player, Ken Bailey had been stranded on Oahu because of Pearl Harbor. Two years later, almost to the day, Bailey would be killed in an attack that naval historians refer to as Little Pearl Harbor. The war, of course, would go on until August 1945. A year later, when San Jose State resumed playing football, the Spartans opened the 1946 season by playing Willamette College, the team they were supposed to play five years earlier in Hawaii. San Jose State won 44-6. Hawaii and San Jose State didn't play one another until 1956. These days, the Rainbow Warriors and the Spartans are both members of the West Division of the Mountain West Conference. They play one another every fall. But even if they never played again, San Jose State and Hawaii would be forever connected by a game they didn't play in December 1941. For Down in Distance, I'm Ivan Mazel. Down in Distance is part of ESPN's College Football 150, commemorating the 150th anniversary of the sport. If you like this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Down in Distance is produced by Nina Ernest, with help from Scott Siebers, Ryan Nantel, and Jody Avergan. Our engineer is Josh Macri. Special thanks to Alexandria Cooper, The executive producer of ESPN College Football 150 is John Dahl. I'm Ivan Mazel.